This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We have been talking on the show. Bill has, Scott has, I have at night. Um, we've been talking about what's going on with the Claremont Access. It's a, I mean, it's a problem. They've got some, the walls, you know, the walls have, some of them have buckled a little bit. There's been some issues. Um, it's a nice way of saying they failed, I suppose, in, in some places. And now the downbound lanes are closed for a couple months while the city figures out what it is that it's going to do. But what does it do? That's, I mean, that's the, I was going to say the million dollar question. It might be more than that. Well, the first thing they have to do, the first thing the city is looking into is how significant is the problem? Well, joining us to discuss this, Dan McKinnon is the head of Hamilton's Public Works. Dan, thanks for doing this this morning. Morning, morning Scott. Where um, a lot of people have been driving up the, the hill, so they've seen what's been going on there. Dan, where do things stand with the whole situation right now? So the, uh, the the work that's taken place um, will start again next week and probably go till the end of February is really just kind of stabilizing the situation along the Claremont. And so the uh, crews that are out there will be inspecting each one of the panels um, beside the uh, beside the access and determining whether or not they've uh, they think they can stay in place or, or if we have to maybe install some more rock anchors to stabilize them. And if they don't feel that they're confident um, that they can stay in place, then we'll have to remove some panels. Uh, but when we do that, we have to um, then we have to scale the rock face behind it. So it's kind of an arduous process to kind of go panel by panel to determine whether we can leave them in place or not. And this is really just kind of a short-term uh, measure so that we can uh, reopen the road again as uh, quickly as we can. Over the longer term, we're going to have to develop a, a longer-term strategy uh, likely get involved in some designs and then go to council with uh, a capital program to uh, to figure out what the long-term solution is going to be to this because uh, all we're doing right now is just a temporary measure. But when you talk about going and inspecting all these panels and, and looking and seeing if they're going to stay in place, uh, how do you do that? Because these are not see-through panels. Like, how do you know what is actually behind them to know if the same thing that caused these failures are going to cause other failures? You're exactly right, Scott. I mean, you can look at the face of the panel itself to see if the panel itself is um, failing, but it is difficult to see what's going on behind the panels until you get right up close to it. Um, and uh, that's what the guys are doing right now is they're, they're doing very close inspections of the, uh, the, the area behind the panels. When the panels were first installed, they, they, don't, um, they don't hug the escarpment face uh, really closely. There's a void between the back of the panel and the escarpment face, which, over, which was uh, backfilled at the time. And over, over the years, it's that kind of dynamic activity that happens behind the panels with the freeze-thaw cycle and tree roots and th- those types of things that can, can affect the, um, the uh, structural integrity of the panels in addition to the uh, condition of the panel itself. So uh, that's why it's, 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 it's slow work, and that's why it's going to take us a while before we feel we can get everything stabilized to the point where we can reopen the road. Is there any way, though, to actually see behind, or is it basically just the, the it, has the panel been impacted and therefore we know what's going on behind it? There's no way to use radar or x-ray or anything, anything like that to actually, it's a metal wall. You're not going to be able to see through it, are you? There, there are some technologies. Uh, they have different uh, kind of levels of reliability um, that, that uh, you can kind of count on in those situations. There is, uh, it's like a radar technology. Um, I don't know that uh, how, how effective it will be in this, this case. I think they are trying some of those uh, uh, different uh, technologies out there right now, but it's going to be a combination of those. I, I think at the end of the day, the most reliable one is if you can visually get in there and have a good look at it. So, 
And again, what would you be hoping not to see? I mean, everyone's hoping that it's not a huge problem because if it is, it's it's a big problem. But what are you hoping not to see then? Well, you know, if, if you're going to see large voids back there, it's obviously an area where water can collect and, and freeze. And then that's that, that can, as we all know, that can push uh, the panels out of place. Um, I think the, the biggest thing for us right now is just getting a, a comfort level with the integrity of the anchors that are holding the panels in place. And uh, if we find panels that we want to leave in place and um, we have to put new anchors in, then we'll go ahead and do that. Uh, but as I mentioned, there, there's likely going to be some panels that we'll have to remove, and then that means we're going to have to scale the rock face behind it. We're, do, we're having this happening in the wintertime. Does, does, does that have an impact? Would this have been easier to do if it had not happened now, if it had happened in, say, July? Absolutely. The, uh, I mean, just the, condi- the working conditions for the guys, uh, they have to out, be out there on the, uh, on the edge. Um, some of these guys are using mountain climbing equipment to, to get up there to secure themselves to have a look. So certainly the lower temperatures, the fact that we got some snow today, a bit of frost in the, uh, on the surface there is just going to make it that much more treacherous for them. So um, had we had an opportunity to pick what time of year we could have done this, we definitely would have wanted to do it in July. Um, but we have to kind of play the cards we've been dealt here. So. Dan, to my, we're talking with Dan McKinnon, the uh, head of public works. To, to my understanding, the walls, the, what we're talking about, were put up in the 1970s sometime. I think that's correct. Um, is that technology, is that structure, is that idea, is it still relevant? Or if you were going to be trying to build a new access today and, and build something up on the walls to keep the rocks from falling, is this technology obsolete? Would it be entirely different how we would do it? I don't know that it's entirely different. I know that uh, one of the approaches that uh, seems to be popular now on rock faces, like the one we have along the Claremont, is these uh, idea of, uh, of a chain link fabric that you can lay along the surface of the, the rock face. That's a lot less expensive. You can actually move them and scale behind them if you need to. So uh, that may be an option that we look very closely at. We've got something similar to that on the other accesses. And uh, certainly when you see... Um, uh, um, that type of technology where it, it's it's not as expensive and you can you can kind of lift it and work behind it that that's something that uh, we'll be taking a close look at for the longer term. I do want to point out that you I mean you are newly installed as the head of public works so I don't want to be uh, I want people to know that so they don't know they don't think entirely everything that goes wrong is always on your plate entirely. That said, um, have we done that you know of? Have we done in the past regular checks? on this so it, we could be preventative or do we just wait for something horrible to go wrong and then say, oh, we got to find, we got to fix this. Like, do, are, there, are there preventative measures that we do with these things all over the city to make sure that something like this wouldn't happen and we, it just got away from us this time? Yeah, that, that's how we detected this one. Our uh, operations crews were up there. They were doing some preventative maintenance. They were uh, removing some shrubs and, and small trees and they were the ones who identified that uh, there was a, a failure that had occurred in one of the panels. Um, the fact that it comes four years uh, after the last one uh, certainly it gives us uh, a, a reason to be concerned now. Um, the panels were installed, as you said, in the early 1970s. This is no different than all other forms of infrastructure that the city owns, be it water or sewer pipes, roads, bridges, those types of things. Um, you know, these things are wonderful when we first put them into place, but they all have a life cycle, and the fact that we're getting to 50 or 60 years, it's probably reasonable to expect that these panels are uh, are coming to the end of their, um, you know, expected life. So, um, but, um, yeah, this was certainly discovered through preventative maintenance, but we are going to have to come up with a longer-term plan here and, and get working on that because a lot of times it can take a year or two just in design 
um, to come up with uh, the solution that you're going to put in place. And then we'd have to see how we're going to fit that into the budget, depending on how much mm. that's, uh, that's going to cost us. So. And the challenge, I mean, the biggest challenge, I suppose, out of this is, uh, you, I mean, the Department of Public Works, your entire realm is not just in panels of walls on the Claremont access. We have infrastructure all over the city that is aged as well, much like these panels would be. And I'm, if you're talking about preventative measures on this to make sure we find this stuff, this is going on all over the city, I'm assuming then with all kinds of things, sewer pipes and water. I mean, you were the head of water before this, but it's not just these that have to be monitored to see if they're going to fail. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, that we're reminded of that very uh, poignantly with the uh, failure of the 20 inch diameter water main in front of uh, McMaster right. University yep. there just last week. So, um, we have about $15 billion worth of uh, assets kind of in the public realm, be it roads, sewers, water, bridges, and the escarpment face. And the escarpment face really is unique to Hamilton. There's not a lot of communities that have to, uh, you know, kind of uh, go up and down it like we do here in Hamilton. So the fact that uh, we've got those extra assets here that are kind of unique certainly adds to the burden that we have from a from a replacement perspective and, a, and creates a capital, but will create a capital budget pressure certainly going into the future. So, but yeah, this is, this is uh, in, in, in the general sense, it's no different than water or sewer. We, we get out there, we do video inspections. We, uh, we try to look at break history. We look at the rideability of our roads. We do regular inspections on our bridges. And um, like all large old communities uh, all over the world, it's one of those things where we have to, we have to be really smart how we spend our money so that we're not, uh, uh, we're making sure that we're replacing these assets before we have any kind of catastrophic failure. So, well, and if this, I mean, and we're, I'm, I'm touching any wood I can find in the room here because this would be an. Ex- we've heard, you know, numbers into the tens of millions of dollars or ten million dollars if this thing were to be a severe problem. But if this does, Dan, turn out to be a significant issue that requires something broader than something much bigger than just replacing a panel or two. If if we find failures up and down the access, do you have any idea? how long it is before this thing can be done? I mean, how long then does this become a, an inconvenience to people who are driving? I wish I had a good answer for you on that. Um, it'll depend on what the, uh, what the engineers come up with over the longer-term plan. I, I'm hopeful that the work that we're doing right now over the next couple of months will be able to stabilize it to the point that it'll give us some breathing room to go back and do some designs and then develop a longer-term capital replacement program. That's certainly what our, our hope is at this point in and based on the information that I'm getting from the crews in the field, there's no reason for me to believe that that's not the case. But uh, at the end of the day, um, the, the health and safety of the motoring public uh, driving along that escarpment face is number one priority, so we're not going to take any risks there. Well, and if you've got people out there doing the inspections now, it seems to be it would be silly to, if there are problems, just to put it off again. Yeah, uh, You're just going to double up do. on your costs, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're, we're going to stabilize it to the point where we're confident um, – opening the road again, and, and that, that'll be a pretty high level of confidence that we're going to have to have before we'll ever open the road again. And then, like I said, that'll give us some time to uh, develop the longer-term plan and try to try to find a way to budget for it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We've suddenly become this place where there's actually a lot of really good places to eat around town. Now, I know there's always been good restaurants in the city. If you looked for them, if you wanted to find them, you could find them, but not like it is now. Now people are talking about it like, again, like we are a food city. We are a destination. If you want to dine somewhere, you can find something for your taste and it'll be good. At least that's the reputation we have anyway. 
That's the, it's a, it's been building, and that's how we are now seen. And interestingly, it kind of, and I don't know if it's directly connected, but it's it seems like it's arrived at kind of along with Super Crawl and some of the other art stuff that's going on. It seems like it's all arrived in the city at the same time. Food as art has become an opportunity for us. Well, Chenry Thatch is the author and the eater, lucky her, of the Hungry Gnome blog. She has been working in this city, covering the local food scene, going to restaurants, tasting the food, sampling the food, uh, loving a lot of it, probably not loving some of it. We'll find out in a second. Uh, But two days from now, Two days from now, Chanry, life has taken a turn and work has drawn her husband out of town. So she is moving to Calgary. Two days from now, the Hungry Gnome will no longer be a Hamilton food blog. So we thought we better get her on here before she goes. Now that she has nothing to lose, all the people that she's dealt with in the past, th- I mean, she's going to be in Calgary. She can say whatever she wants now about Hamilton's food. Tell the unvarnished, unfettered truth about whether or not this reputation we have as a food city is true or if we've been blowing smoke. Uh, Chanry joins me now. Chanry, thanks for doing this this morning. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, if you had, now let me go right back to what I started with. If you had told me, I was going to say five years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, sometime in that ballpark, if you had told me that we would have enough of a food scene to have someone blogging full-time, and not just you, there's other people who are out there doing the same thing, mm-hmm. I would have told you that you were out of your mind because <laughs> we did not have that many food options. Uh, now we do. Why? That's so true. Like I was a huge Hamilton naysayer. I was never, you know, in love with Hamilton the way I was now. I was definitely one of those foodies who always traveled out of town. I always suggested out of town restaurants. And I think, yeah, like you said, like five years ago, all of a sudden there was this huge surge of independent restaurants that were really stepping up their game and offering really, really good options. And since then, it's just been like an uphill climb. And why has that happened? Yeah, any any theory on why our food situation has become so active? I don't know. I think it's just, I think, I want to say a lot of maybe entrepreneurs decided to open up a restaurant, really do what they love to do. And the city, I think, is getting more active. They want to support local. They want to support the local economy. And it kind of went from there. Like, we're huge supporters of our own people. There's that, you know, I, the other thing that I wonder, and I just, this actually just dawned on me as you were talking there is we have heard endlessly, Chanry, about, you know, costs of buildings or of homes or whatever else in Toronto and in the Toronto area. And, you know, if you're going to start a restaurant, that's become in Toronto a multi-million dollar proposition, really, for many people. Mm -hmm. And you could come here if you're talented and for a lot less money. You may not be in downtown Toronto, but you can still do what you want to do, and you can do it here a lot more affordably. Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. And we've had a, a huge influx of, I think, out-of-town chefs or out-of-town entrepreneurs who are coming in and thinking, like, okay, if I want this dream of having my own business, have my own restaurant, like, it's achievable in Hamilton. So if you were going to be describing, and you will be, because you're heading off to Calgary in two days, <laughs> I'm sure you're already packed, um, If you when you get to Calgary... And, and you start talking to people and they say, hey, Chanry, what were you doing before? And you say, well, I was a foodie. I was a food reviewer, food critic in Hamilton. And they say, really, Hamilton? Never think of Hamilton as food. How do you describe the Hamilton food scene to someone who doesn't know anything about it? What's the, what's the, what's the way you would sort of s- summarize it? 
Um, this year especially, I would say Hamilton food scene is like incredibly diverse. I mean, we went from having a quiet scene, and then now this year alone, we went from having like sushi nachos to Taiwanese shaved ice to like a seafood boil place. Like those restaurants all popped up this year within weeks, sometimes months of each other, and it all just restaurants that I never thought I would get to have in Hamilton. Yeah, because we're not, I, you know, it, it's probably insulting to say this, and I've lived here for more than half my life now, so I'm not taking shots at anyone, but you don't think necessarily, at least old school Hamilton, as being that kind of adventure, culinary kind of city. Definitely. Like, for years and years, I always said Hamilton doesn't have, like, like an Asian food scene, like one of those, like a weird restaurant that does more than just, you know, a fries and a burger or whatever. And this year, I think we got it. We even elevated the whole burger game in general. I think everything is, everyone's stepping up their game because now there's not just two, three restaurants. Everyone has to come up to the plate with something amazing. Now, does that make us unique or does that mean we're just catching up to the other places now? I think we're just catching up to the other places now. Okay, so you mentioned that there have been a lot of restaurants that have gotten going in the last number of years, and you mentioned the fact that we're diverse. But again, I'm putting you on the spot here, but every place is different. But in in a general sense, give me a sense of what the new startup, typical Hamilton restaurant is, style-wise, aesthetic-wise, not necessarily food, because they all serve something different, Mm -hmm. but what's the typical Hamilton startup restaurant all about? I think nowadays it's aesthetic. Like, it's not just okay to have good food. You have to have good food in a beautiful environment. It has to be well-styled. The space, the music, the service, even the staff uniform has to have a certain look and feel because people want that. What they used to get in Toronto, people now want in Hamilton, and the restaurant owners are giving them that. I mean, you have Jason, who just opened up the French. It's a beautiful space. You have Manny, who did Uno Mass, beautiful space. I mean, Harrison at Neek, another gorgeous space. People are spending just as much money to make their restaurant look good and feel good as they are with the food. And all those places you just described, uh, I would describe as kind of urban and funky and and not old steakhouse kind of appearance. They are definitely a more modern, more, uh, is, the word, is the word gritty fair? I would say hipster, like. Oh. Let's just throw it out there. Those restaurants are hipsters. They're for young professionals who who want that type of lifestyle, who want a pretty place to have their food, like if you want to really break it down, I think. And that, and that would explain why many or most of these are in the downtown. Yeah, it's true. It's true, I agree. What about price? Because, again, you can go, and I know that it's all over the board, but generally, are most of these places affordable the places that are starting up, or or if people walk in for the first time, are they going to kind of gulp when they see the menu and go, uh, that seems like a lot? I think, to be honest, most people will gulp and say that's going to be a lot. Like with the food scene growing, food cost also grows. And when you're sometimes putting down 200 k or more to open up a new restaurant, you have to, like every entrepreneur has to be able to afford that. So the food prices are going up in Hamilton. I hate, like, sometimes I complain about how expensive, even though I know the breakdown of food costs. It is expensive to eat out in the city now, but... 
And that's ironic. That's ironic because we're in a tough economic time for a lot of people. And you're talking about young professionals, especially. And we hear all the time about the challenges young professionals have of making a life and getting started. And yet here they are, the ones who are driving these restaurants. They are. They're the ones who are somehow like paying student loans, paying off a mortgage, and then going out to eat once, twice a week. And most of, I feel like most of the people in my circle and the young professionals do go out to eat once or twice a week. It's not for special occasions anymore. It's every Friday night, it's Saturday nights, and now it's Sunday nights. Like, Sunday nights in the city is is bumping now. (laughs) Well, well, okay, so I was on your blog. I was getting ready to talk to you today, and I went on your blog, which was a huge mistake. Your blog is great. It's not a mistake to go on your blog. It was a mistake to go on your blog hungry, because I went on your blog at 6 this morning. Uh, By the way, anyone who wants to see it, uh, it's the hungry gnome, G-N-O-M-E, thehungrygnome.net. And I'll tell you, I was absolutely starving within about five minutes of looking at all the pictures and stuff, which I, I suppose is probably the point of what you're doing anyway. So you've succeeded that way, Chanry. Um, but let's walk through because you list, there, there are tons and tons of restaurants you've been to and you've talked about on there. Mm-hmm. Let's walk through some of, let, let's break it down to your top three. If I am a a Hamiltonian who has not really ventured out into the new restaurant scene in this city. And I want to have a cross-section of the three best-slash-coolest-slash-most-enjoyable, best-experience, the whole thing. Put the whole package together. Let's go through your choice. And I never, I didn't prepare you for this. This is off the top of your head. Of your three restaurants that you would say you've got to go to. If you want to, t- if you want to experience Hamilton's new restaurant scene, these are the three you've got to go to. What are they? Oh, my God, you're putting me on the spot. I am. That's so hard. Um, well, let's start with your first one. You must have an absolute favorite. There must be one that stands out for you above everything else. Right? That's really hard. That's so hard. Where would you... Okay, you you have guests coming to Hamilton. Where do you take them? We usually... And I this is the answer I always give because it's the honest truth. I usually do, like, crawls. I'll never sit down and have a full meal at a restaurant. We'll do appetizers at one place and then a main and then desserts. Like in one day I could go to Bruck's house and for appetizers and then I'm at Neek for drinks and then pizza at Born and Raised. I think that's what the Hamilton food scene is about. Like restaurants are so close together. You shouldn't be staying in one spot. You should be enjoying and spreading your dollars everywhere. There is, okay, let me raise a couple then and ask you about them because they were a couple that really stood out on your site that uh, among all the drooling I was doing, they caused exceptional amounts of drooling. One of them, one of them, I don't even know the name of it, I'll be honest with you, and uh, you point out that it's almost impossible to actually find this place. It's a small Korean barbecue takeout that is hidden behind some factory or something somewhere on Barton Street. Oh, yes, I think that was... um the name, it's unfortunately no longer there. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. But it was at a beautiful Korean restaurant, a mom and pop shop, and one day they were there, and then a couple weeks later, they just up and disappeared. Well, that's unfortunate because, boy, I was ready to go there like after reading that <laughs> blog. The food looked, I, having spent a summer in Korea, uh, I love Korean food anyway, and that food looked fantastic. Um, Mezcal and Uno Mas, which is on uh, James Street. Which are which you you alluded to it, um, really, again, really up uh, gritty hipster whatever yeah. else, but also yep. amazing food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I agree. Yeah. Like what? 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 What would be there that would be unique for people who don't know? 
Well, I think with Uno Mass, they do this one dish called raclette, where it's literally just a wheel of cheese that they melt, and they bring it to your table, and they literally just scrape lashings of melted cheese on top of potatoes. Yeah, I'm getting hungry again. Um, <laughs> you mentioned a few minutes ago a seafood boil. What exactly is a seafood boil? Uh, it's this amazing new, in Toronto, all over, L.A., San Francisco, they all have it. Holy Crab is the version that Hamilton has from the same owners as August 8th. And what they do is you buy seafood by the pound, whether it's shrimp, lobster, crab, whatever. You pick a sauce, garlic, Cajun, whatever one you like. They steam it up, they toss in the sauce, and you get it at the table in a plastic bag. There's no cutlery, no knives, forks, nothing. You get a glove and a bib, and you're supposed to just chow down and eat with your hands. <laughs> and that's that's holy crab with a B, not a P. Bob, not Peter. Holy, yeah, with a P and <laughs> numerous O's, so it's supposed to be holy crab. <laughs> Do we, I mean, that sound, that is definitely something that would be new for Hamilton. Do we have any restaurants around here that you would say, if someone was asking you, that fall into the really highly unusual, that someone would walk in and really be taken aback either by the food, by the offerings, by anything to do with it? Do, do we have the weirdness in this city? We're getting there. I mean, there's also a really good northern Chinese noodle place that's downtown, and they pull their noodles fresh. You would never expect that from Hamilton, but they have a gentleman who sits at the back of the restaurant and he's pulling them fresh by hand and you get to order it. It's like amazing. You would never have that in Hamilton years ago, but that opened up this year as well. What percent? You you go to a lot of restaurants to do your blog and you know, you probably, even though you're leaving, you probably don't want to go out blazing everybody, but if you want to, feel free. But nonetheless, <laughs> what percent... When you walk in, honestly, what percent would you say, I would definitely pay to go back to that place again, and what percent would you walk out and say, yeah, you know, once was more than enough? Um, I want to say 80% of the time I say, like, yes, I love this, I'm coming back, and I usually do come back, and you can tell from my feed, like, when you see me go back to a restaurant two, three, four times, like, that's me genuinely liking it. If I, I would say. Once... It's, it was good, but not good enough for me to get back, go back there. Like, I'd like to try everything at least once. We got to go, but let me just ask you this one last thing. Um, you mentioned all the restaurants that have started here, and it's fantastic that we have this selection now. Mm-hmm. But can all these restaurants actually be maintained in this city, or is it inevitable that a number of them, and we've got more coming in too. I mean, it's not like it just has all of a sudden filled up and stopped. Is it inevitable that a number of these are going to fail because you just can't have this many restaurants going and, you know, trying to attract enough people, enough of a of a clientele to work in this city? Yeah, definitely. I think there are some restaurants that have popped up that I don't think will be there in a year or two just because they're, something Hamilton just isn't quite ready for yet. Like we're slowly getting there and I think everyone assumes that the second I open a restaurant in Hamilton it's going to be packed and there's a lineup at the door but there still has to be good market research you still have to have a great product and you still have to think about where Hamilton is like we started as a blue collar city and we're just getting there you're listening to the Bill Kelly show weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML Neil Bandelman has been behind bars in an Indonesian prison rather than back home with his family I mean, you know the story. I'm sure that if you have listened to CHML over the last few years, 
You know the story well. If you follow the Spectator, CHCH, you know details of the Neil Bandelman story. If you saw the Fifth Estate piece on him coming up on a year ago now, I guess, um, you would know the story and you would be very much less confident in what is going on in this story from the other end. Yet that is the reality. Burlington teacher who went over to Indonesia to teach uh, is still behind bars. And for, again, for his family, it's another year, another holiday, another Christmas with him over there and them here. Um, it's not a happy story. It really isn't. His, his brother, Guy, joins me. Guy, how are you today? I'm not too bad, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, glad to have you. I, I'm, did anyone get over there to, to see Neil this year, or was it a uh, was everyone home this year for Christmas? No, we uh, we all stayed home for Christmas this year. Um, we'll uh, we'll see what 2017 brings as far as uh, a trip over there by family members. Uh, but uh, something obviously we just don't get on a plane and go. We've got lots of coordination through uh, you know the school and uh, our team there, and obviously the Canadian government that, that kind of helps us make sure that uh, there's no pitfalls for us if we do. Uh, embark on that journey. That said, I mean, are you able, I know the prison over there is, uh, is not exactly lovely. I mean, are you able to communicate with him while he's there? Yeah, we are, uh, we're able to talk, uh, by phone to Neil on a fairly regular basis. And, uh, we, we make sure as we have in past Christmases and past holidays that, you know, Neil knows when we're having our celebration so that calls can be made and he can talk to, you know, his his niece and his nephew, and obviously my parents and, uh, and our family up here. So we make sure that that works because it helps buoy his spirits a little bit. And obviously for us, it's a great time for all of us to be on the phone and, and talk to him. And, well, and I have to guess that even not during those conversations, but just when you're all together, that he is, I, I, I would just guess that he's probably the main topic of conversation a lot of the time. How could it not be? Yeah, you know, we uh, we obviously communicate between ourselves, but uh, it gives us a little bit more intimate, uh, uninterrupted time to talk about the latest updates and, you know, and where exactly this is going. And, and I guess be just a little bit more thoughtful versus, you know, the 30-second sound bites that we get during the regular busy lives. Yeah, and I want to get to those updates in just a minute, but in a story that I read, you and your family described this, because, again, it's the second year in a row, you described this as your surreal new normal. Does it feel like that? Does it feel like normal now? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a sad word to to use and you know i would want wouldn't want anyone to say you know yeah they're just letting it kind of go that's that's not the case by any means but it is just a reality this is not something that will be resolved next week or um or next month this is still got several months uh in process and you have to accept it as the norm per se to let you move on with life and and though there are other things that go on on a regular basis but uh, in concert with that is the entire effort to get Neil home. And ju- again, just before we get to that, what are the conditions that he's in now? I mean, w- what is the jail like that he's in? Well, it, it's, uh, you know, obviously a, a, a maximum security type of facility. Uh, it houses all sorts of, uh, of individuals uh, from, you know, you know, murderers to rapists to drug convicts. And uh, so that, that adds an element, obviously, in danger that, you know, no one's pleased to have Neil in that environment. Uh, but we've tried to make the situation as comfortable as possible to make sure that he's got as as, as many amenities as possible. Um, Neil seems to have, you know, obviously he's he's someone who's cooperating as much as possible. They do give him a little bit of freedom to to get out uh, into the yard and make sure that he gets his his daily exercise in. And and Neil's 
you know, very regimented type individual. So there is, you know, when I talk to him, well, you know, I'm going to get up guy and, you know, maybe some meditation and yoga, and then I'm going to shower and breakfast and then visitors, depending if it's a legal team or people from the school. And, and he's, he's quite consistent that way. And I think that's important that he keeps that up to maintain some sort of stability in his, in his mind and his life. There certainly have been a lot of downs in this case. There's no doubt about that. There's been a few bright moments as well when things seem to go more positively, although those have usually been followed by something that uh, brings it back down. But I wonder if for you then and for the family, I mean, is the dominant feeling at this point as it drags on and drags on, are you more frustrated? Are you more angry? What What is the feeling that the family has about everything? Yeah, frustration is a really good word to describe it. Um, you know, when I, I look back over the last year, today, ironically, it's, it's a thousand days since this entire saga started, and hmm. that's with the allegations made against the cleaners. Um, so obviously, a, a, you know, a, a milestone, but not one we anyone thought we would reach. When I look back over the time, you get into this process and mindset. So, for instance, the conviction in April in uh, April of 2015, you know, we we as a team felt that Neil was going to lose that case. And as much as you prepare yourself for that until you hear the verdict written and realize this is, this is the reality. Now we've got, you know, to move to an appeal process. Um, you, you still hold out hope. So while there are these downtimes, it's almost like you, you, you almost have to gloss over them because you know there's going to be more fight. There's going to be more work done to get Neil home. Uh, so it, in your mind, it, you you deal with it for a, uh, for a little bit and then you have to move on because if you if you wallow in those downs you you just won't be positive and we won't get the work done that's necessary between them. Is there though? Is there any movement today in the case? I mean, a thousand days in, I, and I didn't realize it's uh, you know it's an interesting day. I didn't realize that was the the timing of it. Um, but when we look now, because he's but let me just go back to that. Is is there anything that has moved? Is there anything that's happening right now that gives you hope that this could be resolved? Uh, obviously, you know, the Canadian government is doing a lot of work behind the scenes, and they are restricted, um, you know, internationally and from a diplomatic point of view on what they can do. Indonesia is, a you know, an independent country. They've got their own rule of law, you know, like it or not. That's That's the reality. But they are, you know, being proactive from that perspective. Uh, the appeal that Neil is working on, and again, this is a very long, drawn-out type of scenario. We're on our fourth version of the document. Uh, that includes new evidence. That includes discussions about law and how law was applied. And also introduces some new witnesses into the case. And unfortunately, because Neil's incarcerated, the you know the language difference. There's lots of back and forth that goes on. And culturally, it's a very uh, it's a very slow, methodical type of scenario, and, and that's the frustrating part. This is not, we're going to get this filed in two weeks' time. You know, we're probably still, in my estimate, about two months away from filing the appeal document, and the process after that could take up to another six months. And uh, and after, after seeing everything that you've seen all along the way here, are you someone who is imbued with a great sense of optimism that these things will work, or do you kind of look at it and go, "Man, I, you know, shot in the dark. I really hope so." But based on everything we've seen, man, I got my doubts. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I try and remain positive, and obviously convey that message where we are being optimistic, and, and we have to be optimistic. We have this opportunity uh, in front of the Supreme Court to appeal the decision. I think 
we have to hold out hope that we get uh, a learned panel that will review the document and you know look at the purported evidence and raise questions with themselves. I think we've got some new expert witnesses or individuals who had their testimony or evidence construed improperly by the lower courts. Um, so yes, I do hold up hope from that perspective. It's frustrating that you know this is not going to be February or May. This could well drag into the summer. Uh, and after that, we have to be prepared for you know the eventuality that there's not a positive response and what are our other options at that point. So while we are putting obviously a lot of effort and focus on the judicial review, we have several other parallel streams that we're trying to run because we don't want to get to a point where we're caught flat-footed and we get a negative response, and then we have to move on to the next phase. Well, right, and, and I don't want to be a downer, but there have been moments along the way that there has been great hope that something would cause a positive response, and it's almost always been met with something negative. And at a certain point, I would think even the most optimistic person must be challenged a little bit to try and maintain that optimism. Yeah, when you you look back over you know the, the length of the saga, there are a lot of down days. Uh, not only when we lose from a legal point of view, but when we're dealing with something you know related to Neil or related to you know the other individuals that are incarcerated, uh, and, and those those are frustrating. And you know, obviously, being half a world away, that causes some consternation and, and does uh, does give you some uh, pause for concern. Um, but you have to continue to you know, use the positive energy, the prayers, and the support that's, that's really worldwide and focus on, on that and making a difference at the end of the day. It, it would be, you know, foolish to kind of throw your hands up and say, well, you know, we're, we're fighting a, a never-ending losing battle here. We, we've got to fight on until, you know, we get the results we want. Many people, uh, and I'm sure you heard immense feedback from this, but many people, I remember talking to people about the Fifth Estate piece that happened, uh, what was it, last February, I guess, end of January, yep. February. Yep. Uh, and that really, uh, I think, clarified and crystallized in a lot of people's minds what this case is and isn't. And a lot of people were very angry when they heard about it. A lot of, peop- a lot of people shared, not your level, certainly you're his brother, but the, uh, shared a frustration with the family and felt that what was happening was... Ridiculous, and I'm wondering if do you have any evidence, any sense that anyone over there actually saw that or was exposed to that piece where sort of the whole thing was laid out so you could see the craziness of it. Yeah, we we've made sure that 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 documentary uh, um, specifically has been raised throughout um, you know our team, and it is it's going to form obviously part of you know, what we refer to as we move forward. The, the challenge you run into almost becomes cultural. Uh, obviously, the Indonesian judicial system, the police, do not want to seem to be um, uh, inadequate and improper in what they've done. And, or pushed but, around, probably, either. Yeah, they don't. They don't they, yeah, they definitely don't like the international backlash saying, you know, what you've done is wrong, and, you know, there's no rule rule of law that's been applied properly or... Or a rule of law that you know that that progressive nations would look at and go, yes, that applies in this case. Um, we've tried to move that forward, but the, you get into this very fine balancing act of not wanting to um, uh, insult them from a cultural basis, but you want to get your point across, and it, it's that becomes more difficult. And given you know social media today and obviously the internet and how that 
allows everyone to have access to to really everything. We have to be careful in the message that's portrayed. And yes, we do find fault in 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 the way the process has worked and you know the purported evidence. Uh, but we have to also balance off you know being um, almost considerate to a point of their system and letting them work it out and see the uh, the challenges and the, the mistakes with the evidence that's already been provided. Now, I'm going to say something that I, I think is probably very daunting and I, for you especially, but I mean, if this, if it doesn't, if they don't listen, if, if, if the system doesn't work um, the way you would hope, he's got close to another, I understand, another 10 years. I mean, that, that has to be, if not motivating, which I'm sure it is, but that has to be a pretty daunting number as well to think, you know, with all, everything that's happened, this is just the beginning. Yeah, I was asked a question yesterday, and someone said to me, well, how much time does Neil have left? And I've, I've actually never considered that, that question or, or being able to, to give you a number. And, you know, I, in my mind, I can do some quick math and kind of figure it out. But, you know, we don't know, you know, the 11-year term, does that apply to when he was first incarcerated? Is there time off for good behavior? And, you know, while that, that number is out there, I think until we exhaust all of the appeals and the different bodies we can go to, I don't think it's going to be something that we're going to, really contemplate because in my mind personally it, it almost crystallizes you know exactly what's gone on and I, I think there's almost an avoidance i know from on my behalf that wants to to not make that number real has he maybe i'm sure you've been asked this question before i'm sure he's been asked the question before i've never heard the answer has he ever expressed to you to anyone else retroactively a wish that he'd never gone over there in the first place uh no, uh, you know, and, and again, Indonesia was the second stop on their, you know, international teaching journey. They had been in Singapore for three years. And, you know, it's interesting. I've learned a lot more about what my brother has been doing um, since this has all happened than, you know, really I, maybe I've paid attention to before. But the, the good work he's done, you know, working with Habitat for Humanity, and Neil created this outreach program that loaded up a ship with school supplies and took it to some of the more remote islands, you know, that's, that's who Neil is, that's who Tracy is, that, that, that's what the international teaching community is like. It's not about going abroad and having a great experience. It's also, you know, culturally being ingrained in the country you're in and giving back to the community. And, and it, it's a very different type of sense than I think most people, you know, think about international teachers. And, it, you know, it's quite humbling to, to think of all the people that are out there that have gone from, you know, Canada, the U.S., North America in general, they get some great experience and great adventure, but they also do a ton of great work. And I don't think Neil would ever uh, say that he regrets any of that. He's never said, oh, man, I wish, you know, we'd gone from Singapore and skipped the Indonesia part and gone right to Hong Kong or wherever else the next stop was on the tour. Because, I mean, life is vastly different if, if he doesn't end up there. Oh, absolutely. And even, you know, ironically, you know, he was on a, a three-year contract, and the only reason they were still in Indonesia, in Indonesia is that they couldn't decide where they wanted to go next. <laughs> And they kind of said, well, you know, let's just do another year. You know, it's a great school and, again, great um, a great area to travel from. And, um, again, they're enjoying their life. So, yeah, so that's ironic. You know, obviously, if Neil could have avoided this, this scenario in his life, I'm sure he would uh, obviously take that. But, again, I, I, I still believe all the good work he's done, he would always weigh that against what's going, been going on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.